Hope you had a good week. I sure did. It's fun seeing all that God does. Like the, We had our all-church uh, Christmas potluck in here uh, Friday night, and that was just great. It looked beautiful. We had a great time, just a neat time of fellowship. And then Saturday morning, it was transferred into being a boutique, and the mops did their whole boutique in here. And then Saturday last night, the junior high and high school kids had a day of ministering over at Villa Valencia and then coming back here and having their Christmas party and so this became kind of a game room and then here it is we're back in here on Sunday and just a chance to gather together and worship the Lord and that's great. Um, let's see a few announcements for the for the week. Um, next Sunday is when we're going to three services instead of two and so that should make it a lot less painful for you to come to church because it won't be quite so crowded. And the service times are 8 o'clock for people. It'll be a little earlier than our regular first service because if you have other things to do during the day, it's a chance to get it over with that first service. And second service will be 9.45, so for some of you, that's a push. Or if you just like to sleep in and take it easy, 11.30 will be the third service. And so um, some of you are like, yeah, you know, now you're going... Let's see, 11.30, that means we need to be there by 11.50, and <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. Let's, let's turn over a new leaf this year and come to church on time. So um, that'll be the week before Christmas Eve, and just to get us ready for the Christmas Eve rush. And so uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll have our normal morning, three morning services, and then Christmas Eve evening, we will have a special Christmas Eve service from 6 to 7. And there won't be childcare, so you can bring your kids on into the main service and just have a time of music and, and having some fun together and celebrating the birth of our Lord. So um, I'd like to invite you all to put that on your calendar and plan on being here. New Year's Eve, which is the next Sunday, we will have three Sunday morning services, again, 8 o'clock, 9.45, and 11.30. And then at, on New Year's Eve night... There is, the Singles Fellowship is going to host a New Year's Eve service from 8.30 until 12.30, I think it is, and a time for games and fellowship and, and um, I think, communion and worship. And, so, and they said everyone's invited. You don't have to be single. In fact, the qualification to come is you have to have had been single at one time <laughs> <laughs> or have aspirations to be single again. So... <laughs> So you're all welcome to, to come on out for that time. It'll be great. Um, as we're having three services now starting next week, it does put a little more demand on children's ministry and ushering and things like that. So be praying about maybe getting involved in some way serving, and I know that that would be appreciated, and you can contact the office to find out how to get involved with children's ministry or with ushering or the donut ministry or different things. Speaking of which, because it was raining earlier, um, the donut ministry is actually in the patio back that way. So when you go out the back door, turn left, you can be in the crowd, the donut crowd. And, uh, but it, we're thankful that they've done that for us um, today. 
Let me see here. Christmas service time's got that. Oh, um, blankets for the homeless. We're again having a ministry whereby if you have blankets, new or used blankets that are in decent condition, that you want to um, share with people who really could use them. Also, jackets or hats or anything that someone who's living out on the streets would benefit from. Bring that stuff to the church and, and we'll make sure that we get it to people who are in need. And um, then also, we have on Sunday nights our, um, our uh, college and career ministry for people 30 and, and below. And we didn't meet last week because we're doing a change in the program, a change of leadership, and, and uh, starts up again tonight. So if you're in that age group, um, love for you to come. We're excited. We were meeting with Jesse and Jennifer. We're going to be heading it up. And I know that God's going to do some really cool things. So that's on Sunday nights at what time? 7 o'clock. So if you're under 30 or you can pass for under 30, <laughs> try to pull it off. <laughs> and uh, come on out tonight. You're more than welcome to be here. Today is the last day for the Parlos Ninos, the shoeboxes for Mexico. And so I see them really stacking up in there in the conference room, which is great. Every one of those boxes means a little kid in Mexico is going to have a, a blessing at Christmas. And so if you planned on doing it, but you haven't got around to it yet, tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, we're heading out to take the stuff down to Mexico. But anytime today, I know... Church will be open for a while. I think we have a missions board meeting this afternoon, so people will be here, and then, and then Rise will be here in the evening. So pretty much any time you want to come back and bring some presents, you can drop them off, and we'll see that, that the kids get those. A high school winter camp, the final payment is due today. And so if you have a high schooler going to winter camp, that would be great. Also, another thing I wanted to mention, talking about the three services, uh, junior high ministry that meets in the bus will be meeting second service. So if you have junior hires, you'll want to definitely come for that second service. If it gets too crowded, we may split them up, but I was just out there during worship and, and uh, Todd came and was talking to me and sharing just what a blessing it was. And he said, and I could see it, I was standing outside the bus and seeing those junior high kids, hearing them worshiping God in there, you could tell they were into it and getting blessed. And boy, how thankful we are that God's, enabled us to minister to those kids and so on the one hand we don't want to break that up on the other hand if we get to where we can't fit in the bus um, I don't know Pastor Chuck said they have another bus that <laughs> we could weld onto it or something but at some point I think the city's going to figure out it's a classroom so we're going to we're going to stick with this format for right now so junior hires second service that's the 945 service also, in the parking lot, if you're handicapped, you probably noticed we don't have handicapped spaces painted in the parking lot. The church is old. It's not a requirement, but we will end up adding them. But for right now, our fix is really better than that because the guys in the parking lot, the, the ushers who are working the parking lot, will find a really good parking space for you if you need special attention or special access. So if you have a handicap thing in your window, they should be looking for you. But if you don't have a handicap placard, 
but you'd still like help, just pull up to any of the guys in the parking lot and just let them know that you'd appreciate some special consideration and they'll find you a parking space right up in the front against the curb or something. And so um, just to let you know that, don't feel like you're asking for something special. It's something that we want to do to make life easier for you. And uh, so I think that's all the announcements. I, I, these all seem really important to me, so I make them. But I know I had somebody this week go, yeah, I never get a bulletin because I know you say everything anyway. And I just... But uh, in reality, it's probably good to be reminded. In fact, Paul talks about this in our passage uh, in Philippians chapter 3 that we're going to be looking at today. As he talks to the Christians and says, look, I'm saying the same thing to you, but it's because I really want you to get it. It's because I really want you to notice. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We've been going through this book that Paul talks to the church in Philippi about how to be happy, rejoicing in the Lord, living life to the fullest. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, he talks a lot about what it is to enjoy life and how it centers around putting other people ahead of yourself, um, serving others, esteeming others higher than yourself, being connected and understanding what it is to be a part of a team. And he gives the example, the supreme example of Jesus, and he gives the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And now as we come to chapter 3, Paul has kind of said everything that he intended to say. And so he starts the verse by saying, finally. But when a preacher says finally, it really doesn't mean they're done yet. It's, It's more of a transitional term. And so he proceeds to do two more chapters of conclusions, really where I'm glad he does because in chapter 3 he personalizes it. He's been pointing at Jesus, at Timothy, at Epaphroditus, but now in in a very humble but helpful way, Paul turns the focus on how he deals with these concepts. How does, how does joy look like in his life? And how does being connected to the Lord and being connected to others really work itself out? And so it's a helpful passage. And I, you know, I've said before, the book of Philippians is my favorite book and in the Bible, and I'm sure it is. But it's amazing because it gets deeper each of the four chapters. I read the first chapter and I go, man, I love that. Paul's perspective in that first chapter. Then I read the second chapter, the part about Jesus emptying himself, and I'm going, whoa, that is great. That's the best. Come to chapter three, and we get into some, over the next few weeks, some just incredibly practical and deep concepts. And then chapter four is just frosting on the cake as he teaches us how to use our minds in such a way that it it will allow us to be the kinds of people to live with the peace and joy that God wants us to have. Here in chapter 3, he begins by saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's the theme of the book, rejoicing in the Lord, but now he's going, okay, let me say this one more time. Well, or he ends up saying it a lot more times. But he says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. I'm not just doing this to be obnoxious. But for you, it is safe. He said, I am concerned for your safety. There's a danger, there's there's an obstacle that's out there that has the potential of robbing you of everything life is supposed to be. 
There's something that if you don't get this, then your life will never experience joy and fulfillment, peace and love, togetherness and, and fellowship. You'll never have that. And I'm afraid that some of you are in danger of buying into that which will rob you, really that will suck the life right out of you. And so, I'm, I'm trying to be safe, he said. And so then he says, beware of dogs. Huh? Okay, here's the deal. Stay away from dogs. Well, he's not exactly talking about literal dogs. Beware of evil workers. Literally, the word there for worker is a word that refers to what someone does for a living. And the word for evil is something that's damaging or destructive. He basically is saying, first beware of dogs. Who are the dogs? The Jews call Gentile dogs. But he's flipping it around to some of the self-righteous Jews. And he's saying, they're the ones who are the dogs. They're evil workers. They're, they are professional life stealers. They are professional destroyers of everything that is good, these false teachers that he's talking about. Beware of the mutilation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The old King James says concision <coughs> means those who cut something off. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That kind of summarizes really, in a lot of ways, what we want out of life and what God wants for us. His dream, His desire for you is for you to be someone who worships, someone who is in contact with God. God's communicating with you. You're communicating with Him. He has His rightful place in your life. A life of worship, it starts there. But it goes beyond that to just rejoicing in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just want worshipers. He wants people who enjoy worship. He wants people who enjoy life. He wants people who have a vitality and an energy and, a, and just that they're thrilled with where they are and who God is and who God has made them. So, hey, worship, joy, happiness. And then also, as he says, you know, we're, we're the real deal because we worship in spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Confidence is another thing, that if you've got your worship down, your joy down, and you're confident, confident means that you look at the future and go, hey, this is looking good. We're doing fine. Confidence is the opposite of of paranoia and fear, of hesitation and depression, of seeing the worst about everything instead of seeing the best about everything. And Paul says, that's the way it's supposed to be. You should be people who worship in spirit. You should be people who are rejoicing in Jesus. And you should be people who have an absolute confidence, but not in your flesh. See, confidence is something that either you have confidence in something other than God, in which means you're fooling yourself, or you have no confidence at all, you're just completely pessimistic about everything, or you discover true confidence in something that's worth having confidence in. And so he summarizes here, here's what life is supposed to be like. But in this discussion, he puts it into the context of, of, a, of an interesting play on words concerning the rite of circumcision. So circumcision isn't something that I speak about a lot, makes junior high kids giggle, you know, but they're out in the bus, so we can handle this as adults. 
Circumcision was a rite that God instituted with Abraham to represent the covenant that God was making with people. And when you look at the actual rite of circumcision, you think, what a funny way to designate a relationship with God. And, and yet it was something when you think about it, too. It's right at the heart of who you are. For God to, to go to the very source of life, to go to that place on a body where you connect with another person in a meaningful way, in a, in a way that, that connects like no other connection where the two actually become one. The source of pleasure, the source of fellowship and all. It's like for God to say, I want to trim that up. I want to be involved in this. And it speaks of the intimacy and the closeness that we want to have, that I want to have with you. Now, for God to have a sign of a covenant, you'd think he maybe would have done something really public, like a t-shirt. You know, just everybody wear this shirt and you'll know. But this covenant that he chose to make someone unique and different is something that's pretty private, really. It's kind of between you and God. He goes, no, this isn't something for everybody to see. This is something for you to keep tucked away. But in this way, God is saying, it's my mark on you. Now, not only that, it's an amazing thing that through science we discover more and more every day and every year, more reasons why God chose that rite of circumcision. It was something that has all sorts of health benefits to preventing not only infections and things like that, urinary infections and things for a man, but preventing cancer for men, but also even preventing cancer in women who are uh, married to those men. A lot of advantages to it. Over in Europe, they've pretty much quit doing it. Um, foolishly, by the way, and as a result, they have huge increases in the amount of some of the diseases that have been, that have been uh, prevented from circumcision. So there was a point to it, but at the same time, the main point to it was God saying, look, I want to own you at your being. I want to mark you. Now, the word circumcision is the Greek word peritome, the word tome, which means to cut, and peri, as in perimeter, it means to cut around. So it's kind of like uh, what you do with an edger when you go around your lawn. Now the word, the <laughs> now the word that he translates in verse two for mutilation, or <laughs> this one's not fit for radio, I'm sure. But <laughs> the word that he uses for mutilation uh, in the Old King James, it's concision, and I like that choice of words because. It's a play on the same word. Concision means to cut off, and circumcision means to trim around. But the word, the Greek word, instead of peritome, to cut around, it's the, weak, it's the Greek word katatome, which means to cut all the way through. Really botch the job really bad, and so thus mutilation. But the image that Paul is creating is by saying, you know, there are these people who are trying to tell you that you need to follow the rules, that you need to become a Jew in every respect and adhere to the law and follow all of that if you're going to be right with God, if you're going to be close to Him, if you're going to know Him. And Paul is saying, you know what? Those people who are trying to use that ritual in an improper way are definitely those who will cut off the very life source for you, will destroy what life is supposed to be like for you. 
when we were studying in Galatians, Paul picks up this theme a lot, and he, you know, he is much more graphic than, than we are comfortable with, with our modern sensibilities, but he basically referred to people who were doing that and saying, I wish they would just cut themselves off, literally, and that's the idea here. There are those who will destroy for you everything life is supposed to be. And these people are the ones who will try to make for you religion is what it's about. It's what you do. It's how you do it. It's following those rules. If that's your definition of relationship with God, what a sad thing. Because that can't provide a true connection. It's just outward conformity. That cannot give you true joy. It'll never be fulfilling. And when we substitute man-made policies for God himself personally, then we certainly are opting for something that destroys life for us. And our confidence is in something that will never come through, that will never work for us. The Old Testament law was given as a symbol and a picture and a reminder of the fact that we're in trouble. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. What's wrong with me can't be fixed by what I do. And, and yet it's a beautiful point because once you realize you're not the answer, now you start to look for what is the answer. For them, that was always insufficient. They would sacrifice, but they'd have to keep sacrificing. And that sacrifice was no doubt confusing to them. How does killing an animal do something for me in my relationship with God? And their relationship with God was sadly one of distance, whereby the high priest would represent them and go in just one day on Yom Kippur, one day a year, and could come in in the presence of the glory of God. And yet when Jesus came, he fulfilled that law. He fulfilled the requirements of the law to satisfy God and to allow us to come boldly before the throne of grace. The veil in the temple was ripped in half and we finally could know God personally. And yet for many people, they liked the comfort of the law. They liked the security of feeling like I'm doing it. We want, we go, okay, yeah, God did it for us, but we need to do it ourselves because we don't have the confidence that God is able to do what he says he's going to do. God says that he will make us righteous, that when he has begun a good work, he's going to complete it. But I don't have great confidence in him doing that. And so as a result, I think I better clean up my own act if anyone's going to do it. The law shows us the need. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his grace fulfills that and truly gives us a relationship with God. But there will always be those who are more comfortable making up rules, creating religion, and bringing, boiling life down to just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And you know, I don't care how good your do's and don'ts are. If they say do, you'll say don't. If they say don't, you'll say do. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 7. For me, growing up in a, in a real conservative church, as a little kid, I learned what religion was. And my religion was kind of this, through all of everything else. I knew that if you were a Christian, you sure didn't smoke. Christians don't smoke. Smoke is going to come up from hell for eternity. And it's not for you to put that hell in you. I still don't smoke. But I don't think that that was really 
the point. Also, I learned that Christians don't drink alcohol. I learned that Christians don't use certain words in a bad way. I learned that Christians don't dance. I learned that Christians aren't Democrats. I le- <laughs> and, it, you know, I also learned that Christians aren't Catholics. And I have this safe little package of like, okay, here's who we are and here's what we do. I learned that Christians don't, you know, sometimes won't trick-or-treat or dress up for Halloween or whatever. Although my mom always let us do it anyway, but there were plenty of people at church that let me feel very assured that that was wrong. We should have all our lights off and be huddling in the back room somewhere. And so (laughs) the Christian life, that's what it was. And it was really confusing as a kid. For instance, when, and this will tell you how old I am, but when John Kennedy was assassinated by who knows how many people, I, you know, (laughs) I still have no idea who killed him. I know Marilyn Monroe had something to do with it. But, <laughs> and Elvis. But, uh, you know, it's like, I see all these people who are crying and upset that our president was dead, and I'm thinking, dude, he, he's a Catholic? He's a Democrat? What's wrong here, <laughs> you know? And seriously, that's how, when life gets really simple and clean and neat, you just become, hmm. See, because we were never designed to live by rules. The rules were there to show us that we can't do it on our own. But what the Lord wants to do is to be in a relationship with us whereby we know Him and walk with Him and it's real. And therefore, as Paul's saying here, be careful because there are some people who make a living stealing your joy and your life. There are some people who have a whole lot to gain by you believing that they are better than you that they set a higher standard and you need to give to them and follow them and link up with them and worship them if you're ever going to make it because they've kind of made it more than, they ha- than you have. And so they have everything to gain by convincing you to be religious. But in reality, they will fail again and again and again. And Paul's warning, don't buy into that superstition. Don't buy into that con game. But he says... We're the real circumcision. We're the ones who have really been trimmed around the edges. And here's why. He says, because we worship God in spirit. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus. And we have no confidence in the flesh. So are we real? Are we the people that he's talking about here? There's three easy ways to find out. First of all, we worship God in spirit. Do we? What do we think of when we think of worship? And what does it mean to worship in spirit? As opposed to worshiping in the flesh, maybe. As opposed to believing that worship is something... Well, over in John chapter 4, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, normally the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. Samaria is that area of Israel that's in the center of the country but over on the the east side of the country along the Jordan River. It's called, today they usually call it the West Bank of the Jordan River. So if you're looking at a map of Israel and you have the, the Mediterranean Sea over on your left would be over here, the Jordan River running down on the right, this is Israel in the middle, Samaria is the part right in here. 
they had kind of split off from the rest of Judaism by intermarrying and intermingling with the Canaanite cultures. And they bought into a lot of Judaism, but they added a lot of other elements into it and kind of destroyed Judaism. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't really like the Jews. The Samaritans, in order to function without having to always go down to Jerusalem to the Temple Mount to worship, they just kind of made up their own Temple Mount, and it was called Mount Gerizim. And they created a center of worship there. Now Jesus goes, to, goes through Samaria and sits by the well, which was unheard of. And a woman came to the well, and this was in the afternoon. Women usually only went there in the morning. This woman, though, other ladies probably didn't like her too much because she was a sleazy person. Been married five times, living with a guy now, been with who knows how many other guys. So she knew all the guys in Samaria, but she didn't know many of the women. She was there by herself, and Jesus struck up a conversation with her. And he began to talk to her about water that he could give that would allow her to never thirst again. And if you turn over to John chapter 4, Jesus says something that totally helps us get an indicator as to what Paul is talking about. But as Jesus began to talk to her about a water that would quench forever, you wouldn't have to keep drawing from the well. As water was, as religion was, he said, why don't you go get your husband? And she said, well, technically I'm single. I'm coming to the singles thing on New Year's Eve. He goes, oh, yeah, I guess so. He goes, yeah, you're single. Let's see, you've been married five times. Those guys are all gone. And now you're living with a guy, but you're not really married to him. Hmm, yeah, I guess you're right. And she was just blown away. Like, wow, this guy is some kind of fortune teller. How did you know this? And so then right away she turns from being kind of flippant and coy to where she asks a very serious question one that they were taught about from when they were little kids in Samaria. And she said to him, you know, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet in verse 19. And then she said, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She's basically saying, how do I get to God? Is it in Gerizim or is it in Jerusalem? And Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So back to Philippians chapter 3, when Paul says, we're the real deal because we worship in spirit, it reminds us of this conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman where she wanted to know, okay, where do you go to worship? And Jesus said, it isn't about where you go. It's not about a time. It's not about a place. It's not about locale. It's something that's real, and it's something that works everywhere. It's something that's designed to be completely a part of your life, not just an event that you go to or a place that you visit. How does that work? The Holy Spirit is with us all the time. 
and we are designed for our whole lives to be a worship service. And you go, but wait a minute, I don't know that many songs. No, it's much more than that. Worship is opening your heart to him and expressing to him what he is worth, thanking him for what he has done. And we are designed to worship. Now, it's great to come together as a group to worship God, but hey, an hour of worship a week isn't enough. Not close. God wants us to live in the realm of worship. And when we do that, and it's for real, it's so much better than some fake worship of going through the motions. See, when you get together and it's like time to worship, um, is your heart ready? Are you thinking about it? We become so good at singing songs once we've heard them. And it's one of the reasons why if there's a new song, we get grumpy. (laughs) I don't want to, you know, because I don't want to worship and think, you know, because... We can actually sing a song and not even think about it. I can be thinking about lunch and singing about how great is our God, and I'm like, yeah, no problem. Or the great thing when you're in a group of people, all you need is about every fourth person to be singing, and everybody else can just be moving their lips, and you know, you can pretend like you're just trying to spare the people in front of you, but in reality, it's so easy in a group to fake it. But the danger in life is that we fake it with the Lord that we pretend something that isn't really genuine and from our heart. Now, how does worship in spirit work? I was really focusing on this this week and making a point wherever I went. When I was in my car, when I would go for a walk, as I was just studying or whatever, to be enjoying it with God. And so when I'm here, I can look and just go, I want to notice what God has done. And I look out the window and I see the beautiful plants and I think, what a great idea that God had when he made those rocks. Well, I think those are man-made, but, you know, modeled after God. (laughs) And the trees, and I look out at the beautiful little purple flowers out there and that planter out here. And I notice that they trimmed this planter here so all the flowers are gone now from that one. But it's like beautiful. The sky is so interesting when we have this kind of weather and how God has designed it so that water can come down from heaven and water the land and then God clears it up in time for church. It's incredible. It's like, (laughs) man, and I look around and I see the world. I see little birds flying and I, I go back and I hold some little child and it's just so amazing. And it all becomes worship. It all becomes God. You're so good. Now, there are two different ways to look at anything. In fact, looking around this church, there are two different ways to do it. And there's a place for each, no doubt about it. But one, and the one that we're so often good at, is is the look of a critic, the look of a scrutinizer. And so sometimes I walk through the church and I look for things that are wrong. Oh, there's that bulb that's burned out. There's a wire hanging out there. Somebody left something sitting up there. And What's that doing here? And we really need to get rid of that. And, and you just go, okay, I'm focusing on what's the matter. But living life that way, looking around and noticing everything that's wrong, causes you to miss so much that's right causes you to miss so much that could inspire your heart to worship. The other way of living your life is to look around for signs that God is still alive, for signs that he sees and he knows. And boy, when you do that, it's just amazing how something clicks, and it's a different perspective. For the high school Christmas party yesterday, 
one of the things that they did before their big party is they took the kids over to Villa Valencia. And I, and I suspect that most of the leaders and a lot of the kids were sort of dreading that part. But it's like, I know they're going to feed us after we get back. I know there's going to be games. And so, you know, let's go. Visiting old people isn't sometimes your first idea of, that's a fun thing for a 14-year-old to do. You know, it's just, it doesn't. It, it doesn't click that way with us. And yet, from reports that I got, it was the greatest time of the day for those kids to see them have the opportunity to minister to people who desperately needed it. I heard a story, one of the, one of the ladies had uh, mentioned that all she wants for Christmas was a teddy bear, and so um, Elisa Hill went and picked up a teddy bear really quick and then picked a couple of girls and said, why don't you go give this to that lady? And they went and presented the teddy bear to this lady, and the lady's just crying, and then these high school girls are just sobbing, and Elisa's trying to take the picture, and she's crying, and, can't, and it's like, who would have thought? I thought for sure the jousting, inflatable jousting pit would be a highlight of the day. But what happens is when we realize and look around, it's like, man, God can do some great things in special ways that will totally surprise us. You ever notice how if you plan to have fun, it doesn't usually work out the way you plan? You schedule a day and go, that day I'm just going to play. And then your car breaks down and you spend half the day, you know, waiting, you know, for the AAA and then talking to a mechanic and having them figure you can't go anywhere and you can't. And you go, man, I, I really intended to have a fun day. And yet, how much different it is as we worship God in the Spirit and we go, everything I'm doing today, God's with me. The Holy Spirit is inside me, and I'm going to be looking for His hand, His divine appointments in what I'm doing today. And it makes all the difference in the world. And this is what, if the enemy can rob you of something, he'll start right here. Okay, he can't make you not believe in God, but he can make you ignore God and, and cause you to think that worship is something that we do at church. Worship is something that I do for my devotions in the morning. Or worship is something that this place, this time, with these people, it's the only way we can do it. When in reality, our opportunity is to worship God constantly in spirit. To spend that time with Him, praying without ceasing. Practicing the presence of God. Recognizing and realizing that He is with us and that He's worth it and that He's doing good things. Secondly, he says, we're not only worshiping God in the Spirit, but we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Joy is something that it's really hard to fake. You can fake it for a real short time, like when somebody says cheese. <laughs> but, you know, to find out if you really have joy, what do you do when the person's going, wait a minute, hold it, hold it, hold it. And I don't know why people buy cameras that focus and stuff. Those little credit card size cameras take great pictures and you just snap it but you even have some people it takes there's always one in every crowd that even with the all you do is push the button and they're like no wait you need to move here and you need to do this and you're like okay I don't know when it's happening so I'm smiling and I, and whereas candidly if they said smile you know how to smile but none of us know how to smile for like five seconds it will always look plastic and painted on you know, it's why the great thing about photography nowadays, don't make them smile. That's what Photoshop is for. Fix it later. <laughs> but rejoicing, enjoying life, having a good time. 
with him is something that flows forth from worshiping God in the spirit. Spend your days with him and joy follows. Religion, on the other hand, you get suspicious if somebody's laughing too much. You go, I don't know. It just seems like it's offensive to God when you're making jokes, you know, especially about circumcision. Oh, man, that's... When we think that God is this fuddy-duddy who you can offend if you're not careful, he made us, and, and he thought he did a good job, and he appreciates us and enjoys us, and, and God is the epitome of joy, and he goes, I want you to do this with me. I want you to enjoy life with me, rejoicing in Christ Jesus. Religion will never bring joy. Religious people are the most empty and depressed and sad people around because ultimately religion leads to failure. It leads to guilt and misery. Or it leads to arrogance. I'm better than you are. And, and that's not happy either. Never. That's not how you get happy. But he said, when you're the real deal, the way life really works, it's going to result in joy. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's the point of this book. And Paul would say, hey, if you let somebody brainwash you to where your joy is gone, if you let someone distract you to where your joy is gone, if you just aren't happy anymore and you're saying that you're in Jesus, you just got ripped off. You just got cut off. You just got the life taken right out of you. And I'm warning you, they're going to try it because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so if Satan can steal you of your joy, he can rob you of your strength. I think sometimes as we get older, we experience less joy. We just become jaded. We become tired. Everything aches. There are all kinds of reasons not to have fun. And most of the things that would be fun, you'd look silly doing it. And so it's just like, okay, I'm old. I'm not supposed to be happy. I have a friend, Joyce Lynn, who Joyce... Schmelz Bell is now her name, but she's, she's burned through a couple husbands who died ahead of her. But, but they, live over in, <laughs> they live over in Leisure World, and she's so funny. She, I remember one time I was going over for some event, and I see Joyce rollerblading in Leisure World. <laughs> and she's, let's face it, you can't live there unless you're 55 or over. But there she is in skin-tight leather, pink leather pants, rollerblading around in Leisure World. Her, she works for her son, and it's kind of funny because a guy came in one time and complained to her son, Tim, and said, Tim, I have to talk to you about your receptionist out there. The way she dresses is just so flamboyant and outlandish and unprofessional. It's kind of, uh, it, it's really, as a man, it, I have a problem with that. And Tim goes, well, okay, I'll talk to my mom about it. <laughs> But what is wrong with us that we think when we are designed for joy and we somehow think that the older you get, the less joy you have, and that's okay. That's the way it ought to be. Act your age. Hey, acting your age should be the longer you've lived in this world with God living in you, the happier you should be about it. The more reasons you should have to celebrate and, and be full of joy and you're being fooled and conned by those who would rip you off to convince yourself of anything else. Joy isn't for the young and foolish. Joy isn't for those who, well, ignorance is bliss, but you know, when you know what I know, believe me, you're not going to be happy anymore. A real believer, a real 
worshiper, a real follower of God who has that connection with God, is going to know how to smile and laugh and appreciate the ironies of life and, and celebrate the great events that God has done. Worshiping in spirit will lead to rejoicing in Christ Jesus. That's the way we are designed to live. And finally, and I do... <laughs> No confidence in the flesh. Again, as I said before, you can either live your life with no confidence at all, just feeling defeated and miserable. You can live your life trying to talk yourself into believing that there's some, something in you that you can trust or that the person who's with you, you can trust and eventually be let down by the fact that everyone you've ever trusted in is just like you, weak. Or there's someone who can truly have confidence in Jesus Christ, who can say, I know how he is. I know what he can do. I know how much he loves me. I spend time with him constantly, and I trust him. And when something doesn't go according to my plan, I go, it's okay, because he knows what he's doing, and my confidence is in him. Man-made religion is an attempt to be confident in some set of standards, rules, and regulations, that will always disappoint us. That's not real. And so the person who was trying to conform to the law would always find out they couldn't do it. And for these people in those days, especially after the temple was destroyed, shortly after this, now what do you do? We can't even sacrifice. What have the Jews been able to do for the last couple thousand years without a sacrificial system? But see, in reality, to depend on something like that is really kind of bizarre anyway. That was only a picture of the one who would do the real thing, who would be the sacrifice for our sins. And if we believe in him, we ought to be confident. We shouldn't be scared all the time and worried about what's going to happen next. We shouldn't be people who are depending on our ability to be good. We shouldn't be people who live our lives with paranoia, with pessimism, who always see the glass is half empty. We shouldn't be those kinds of people because we believe in a God. We, we worship a God living. We enjoy Him rejoicing together. And therefore, we should have great confidence in His ability to finish what He started. Life is never out of His control. It's a shame so often religious people become the most paranoid people. They're always worried about what's going to happen next. What if I step out of line? What's going to happen? What, what's God going to do? I heard somebody this week saying, you know, implying that, you know, several people have crossed me and they've died. Yeah, I'd like to say that. You know, I'm thinking back. I, honestly, uh, people who crossed me tended to be really blessed. So I don't know what that means. But do we live our lives always worried? Because that's what you have to do if your confidence is in your own flesh. Paul goes on, and we'll see next week, as he says, by the way, I'm a guy who if anybody was going to have confidence in the flesh, I have reason to. But he figured out that wasn't enough. That wasn't sufficient. That wasn't real. And religion isn't going to be enough for us either. Religion will always lead us to worry. Will always lead us to fret. 
Because we can be as tight in our religion and find that we're very righteous, but then we look around and go, man, nobody else is playing by the rules. Nobody else is doing this. I'm good and I'm losing. Because it's not what it's about. And so Paul is saying, be careful. There are people who would take everything away from you that gives you life. And they'll substitute in its place a hollow and empty form of godliness that has no power. You know, um, in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, as he wrote and said, you know, there comes a time when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people to disband themselves from those who would restrict them. And he talked about declaring independence from England. And then he goes on to say in the foundational statement there in the second paragraph, he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson recognizing people have been created and they have a right to live their lives in freedom. And they have a right for, to live, really live, and to pursue happiness. And that's kind of what goes on within every one of us. There is that sense. Now, when Jefferson, his first uh, version that he wrote of the Declaration of Independence, he said, life, liberty, and property. And then he thought, there's so much land. Everybody will have plenty of property. That's not going to be a problem. Boy, those of you who are renting, don't you wish he had left it like that? <laughs> and then he said, life, liberty, and happiness. But he realized, you know, there are a lot of people who choose to walk away from happiness. And so he came upon that, the pursuit of happiness. Gail Irwin says, boy, can happiness run. <laughs> Pursuing it is tough. But in reality, that's the recognition that, and, and it just makes so much sense. God didn't create people to make them miserable. God didn't create people to not allow them to utilize their choices and to, and to exercise that freedom that he has given them to find that happiness that makes you feel like, now I'm living. But though God created us with the ability to pursue happiness, Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, paid for it. He opened that door. When the word became flesh on Christmas and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, God said, here you go. This is what you've been looking for. But today, we still have a choice. We can create a religion or buy into a religion that some professional life destroyer is trying to make us live. How many people have restricted you and your freedom in Christ? How many people have made you feel like, hey, they're a professional, therefore they must be right, therefore I must be terrible, and I'm never going to get any better than this person? Professional life stealers. Paul was saying, be careful of that, because your joy will be gone. Your worship will be destroyed. It's life won't work the way it's supposed to if you give in to that. But to submit to what he has done for us, to let God be God, to let his grace be the rule, now there's a way to really enjoy life. Now there's a way to spend life with him in worship, not burdened down by the, by the regiment of religion. And may God help us to never, as a church, become a religious institution. 
to become a place where, okay, that's where we worship, that's where we learn, that's where we have to be, and oh man, if one Sunday I can't make it, oh, I feel like a terrible Christian. I can't do it. You know, you're not chariots of fire. Don't worry. You, know? you can run on Sunday. It's okay. I'm always baffled when Christians talk about chariots of fire being such a great movie. And I mean, okay, it's all right. But if the message is, we can't do that on Sunday, we don't understand God. Because he goes, all these days are my days. All of your moments are my moments. And if one day your kid has a, has a little league game on Sunday morning, you should be there. It's okay, I'll be with you. You can worship if they win. And <laughs> I'm not trying to talk you into not coming to church. But what I want you to understand is you're not achieving anything by just being here. It's that relationship that I so desperately want you to have. Because I know if you don't get it, and if instead what you do is to buy into my brand of religion, I'm going to be looking out here and you guys are all going to look miserable. The joy won't be there. You won't laugh at my jokes. If you can spend your week worshiping God in the Spirit and rejoicing in Christ Jesus and not trusting in the flesh, then we'll get together and it'll be great. It'll be fun. But if we don't, then us getting together doesn't do a thing. It doesn't mean anything. Christianity is not a game that we play. It's not us pretending to be all cleaned up and spiffy when we see each other. It's, a, it's about having a real relationship with a living, breathing God, the one who made you. The one who loved you so much that he sent his son to make a connection with you. And he's not looking to mutilate your life. He's not looking to cut off anything that gives you pleasure. All he wants to do is to make those subtle adjustments in your life so that you can worship him freely, so that you can rejoice in him, and so that you can have the confidence that says, I know I'm okay. I know he loves me. I know that he wants to be with me, likes me. He appreciates me. And I do him too. And that's the relationship that's real. Anything less than that is a substitute that will, it's worse than nothing. Being religious is worse than just being nothing. Because being religious is something whereby you invest your life and you brand yourself. And then, as Jesus told the Pharisees, you make other people's lives hell just like yours. You make other people miserable as they follow you. Oh, may God help us not to be those kinds of Christians, but to be those who, like Paul says, yeah, we've been trimmed up. We've, been, we've had those adjustments made, and we're worshiping God in spirit, and we're rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and we aren't trusting in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for all that you do for us. We kind of spend one day a year thanking you. And yet, as we walk out the door this morning, we will see a million reasons to praise you and to worship you. You bring blessings into our lives as simple as giving us the opportunity to watch a bird gliding along through the air a flower spouting forth from the ground, or a person who has loved us even when we haven't acted lovely. 
and your blessings surround us, and we are so thankful. We love you, God. Help us to worship in spirit. Make it the real thing for us. Teach us the joy that comes from worshiping in the spirit. And then help us to never trust ourselves or anyone else, but to have total confidence in the one who loved us so much that he died for us. God, we thank you for all that you've done. Help us to figure this out. Protect us from professional life stealers who just want to ruin everything for us. Rain on our parade. Help us to see it for what it is when it happens, to avoid it by focusing on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.